you're going to learn to be true dodgeballers, then you've got to learn the five D's of dodgeball. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Yeah, um, shouldn't we, like, learn by dodging balls that are thrown at us, or...? That's what this sack of wrenches is for. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. What? to start a Sunday morning. Welcome to Hope Everyone. Disclaimer for the kids, don't do any of that. I know, yeah, don't do any of that stuff. Um, yeah, really quick as we're starting our time this morning all together, I wanted to start with an exercise. Uh, so turn to somebody next to you or if you're spread out, find a new friend. And in a minute or less, I just want you to share what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given. What's something that somebody has shared with you that just sticks with you, uh, that you kind of maybe even repeat to yourself, or uh, a one-liner, or a cliche, or something, but just turn to somebody next to you and share what one piece of good advice is something that you really grab hold of. Sounds like a lot of good advice out there. I don't know if any of it can possibly match. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. That's pretty good advice. Um, of course, from Dodgeball, the movie, Average Joe's gym is going out of business, and to try to save their gym, they need to raise some money, and as luck would have it, there's a dodgeball tournament, and the first prize pays the exact amount of money they need to save their gym. So they enter this dodgeball tournament, but they don't know how to play. So they enlist the help of this legendary dodgeball coach, Patches O'Houlihan, and he is going to show them the right way to play dodgeball. Now his coaching is very unorthodox, but he is very convinced that he knows the, the right way to go. He's got this great advice, almost this, this philosophical Yoda-like way of approaching the game of dodgeball, and he leads them all the way to the championship. Uh, we're starting a new message series today. It's the first weekend of July, which is kind of hard to believe already, but here we are uh, starting a new book of the Bible. So all year long, we're reading through the Bible together as a church, and this week we turn the page to the book of 1 Corinthians. So in the month of July, 1 and 2 Corinthians is what we're going to be looking at. And if you have your Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's where we'll spend most of our time together today. Now, there are some assumptions I think we make when we approach certain parts of the Bible, right? 
there are a bunch of different books. And 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they are letters that are written to the church that has been planted in the city of Corinth in ancient Greece. Paul, the apostle, has planted churches in Corinth, which is a city, and he's writing letters to them to help encourage them and grow them in their faith and their understanding. And I think one thing for us that we can tend to assume is that because these were written so long ago, 2,000 years ago, that the people who were reading these for the first time or hearing these stories about Jesus for the first time, that maybe they just weren't as, as advanced as we are or as intelligent as we are. They were, they were simpler people. They didn't know as much. I mean, we have 2,000 more years of, of academic advancement and scientific and technological achievement. Surely we're far superior to the people in these ancient times, and, and probably because they were maybe more spiritualistic or, or they had an easier time with supernatural stuff. Maybe that when they heard about Jesus, this gospel message that we're going to talk about today, that, that God came into our world in Jesus Christ and gave his life for us on the cross so that we could be saved. Well, in ancient times, they probably just didn't have a problem accepting that, right? They, they, were, they were more spiritual. They didn't have a problem with believing things like that. Whereas we today, with all of our intellectual advancement and achievement, it's a lot harder for us to believe these things. We make that assumption because, again, it was so long ago, but it's helpful to remember that the Bible itself was not, was not written down or, or told. It was an orig- originally an oral tradition. It wasn't written in a vacuum, there were a lot of other things happening in the world around the Bible that, that helped influence what we received and also that the Bible influenced culturally. And one of the big things, again, as we're talking about ancient Greece and the city of Corinth, is that for 400 years and more before Jesus was even born, they had already received and been writing about the highest philosophy that some of them would ever produce. So this is Plato. Plato was born, probably the most well-known of the ancient Greek philosophers, was born in 427 BC. So when he's writing his dialogues throughout the course of his life, that again is 400 years before Jesus was even born. Meaning that the Greek people of Corinth were reading philosophy for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even before Plato, I mean Socrates and Pythagoras and Heraclitus and before them, they were a smart group of people who the church was interacting with. This gospel story that, that, about Jesus who has come into our world to save us and set us free, it's actually running into a Greek philosophical tradition and system that was advanced, that knew a lot. They weren't know-nothings who lived in this part of the world. And just because it was 2,000 years ago doesn't mean it was a simpler time. I mean, if you've ever been uh, inflicted with undergraduate Greek philosophy, you know how confusing this stuff is and how hard it is to understand. These were a smart group of people. Uh, Now, some of the things that we are going to talk about this morning, we don't often cover on weekends. Um, Sometimes we just think things are better left to other classes. And so um, things like the Alpha Course, if you've ever taken that with us, it's kind of our Christianity 101. Or when we offer it again, if that's something you feel like would be interesting or helpful to you, we talk a lot about this stuff there, more of the historical context of the Bible. But because we're talking about Greece and where these letters were going to and, and what is contained in them, I feel like it's worth it to talk about how we understand and know that the Bible that we read is actually what was written down back then. I mean, that might even be a question that you've asked. How do we know that this Bible that we're spending all year reading is authentic to how it was originally written 2,000 years ago? 
that as it's been copied and reproduced over time, is it still what they wrote then? There's actually a science that goes into helping us understand not just about the Bible and its text, but all of these ancient documents that some of I've already mentioned. How do we know that they're reliable? So there's a science called textual criticism where where, uh, historians will investigate and they'll collaborate and collect all of the ancient manuscripts that we have of different texts. And they'll they'll, uh, date them, compare them, look at translations, and and see how faithful those representations are to when they were originally written. So a few examples. I already mentioned Plato's Republic, uh, written sometime around 357, again, B.C., before Christ. But the earliest copy that people have found of this, and it's not a full copy of the Republic, it's a fragment, wasn't until 200 AD, so 557 years after it was written. That's the oldest copy that we have, and there are only about three of them that we know of. Aristotle, a generation later, writes the Poetics. Aristotle was one of Plato's students. He writes that in 384, and it isn't until 1000 AD, 1400 years after it was written, that we actually have a copy of it, and there are only about seven fragments of that. Um, A little closer to when the New Testament was written, so Caesar's Gaelic War, Livy's Roman history, if we didn't have this one document, we wouldn't know hardly anything at all about Rome. We would look at those ruins and have no clue what they were. Written sometime around the same time that the New Testament was being written. But it wasn't until 900 that we have either of those copies, years later, 950 years later, and again, nine of those copies, 10, 20, very few. But no historian and no archaeologists deny that these are authentic, that when we read, when poor undergraduate philosophy students are made to read the dialogues, that no one is saying, I wonder if that's really what he wrote down. It's not really an argument or a debate. It's generally accepted that what we have today is what we had then. And the New Testament, how does it compare? Well, uh, the New Testament that we have in the Bible, so from Matthew to Revelation, about the history of Jesus' life and his story and what he did, and then the church from there was written during the first century, so from about 40 to 100. The first partial manuscript, the oldest one that we have, is from 130, just 30 years after the fact. And then the first full copy of the Bible that is in existence is from 350 A.D., That seems like a long time, right? 300 years after it actually happened. But when you compare it to how we judge other historical documents based on their authenticity, it's really recent that the Bible that we have, the oldest copy, is pretty recent to when it was actually historically happening in the world. And then, because the New Testament, because the life and the the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was so transformative for the entire world that it literally changed world history, it exploded across the Mediterranean region in so many different languages, and people kept writing these things down. So we have 5,000 ancient Greek copies of manuscripts of the New Testament, 10,000 in Latin, and then 9,300 in other languages like Syrian or Coptic or Aramaic. People were writing about the New Testament in ways that nothing else had ever been cataloged because it was so world-shaking that they had to get it down on paper and spread it and share the good news. That's what we're still doing today. So just by the numbers, the simple numbers of it, the New Testament that we read is about 3,000 times more historically reliable than any other ancient text that's out there right now. So we know that when we're doing this as a church, when we're reading through the Bible, we're not just taking a guess that we think it's something that is worth doing. We know that this is something that, at the very least, is historically, archaeologically relevant. But, But at most, at best, it is the thing that has shaken the world to its core and changed the course of human history for all time. 
and that it's really worth us investigating it deeper and applying it to how not only we live our lives today, but how our lives continue to persist and influence the world around us. And, and so the, the, the New Testament, as it's coming out, as it is interacting with this culture that has a long history of, of philosophical thought, that's why we get Paul's letter to the first Corinthians starting off the way it, way it does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, it'll be up on the screen, he says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. I mean, the, the, the Greek word philosophy, philosophia, means the love of wisdom. These were a wise people. They look for that. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's our story. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Greeks. It was not easy for a Greek-speaking people, lovers of wisdom, to receive this story, this message about how God saved the world through Jesus Christ. It was not easy for them at all. It didn't actually make any sense to them. One of the biggest reasons why it didn't make sense to ancient Greeks, if you think about their culture... They were known for their pantheon of, of gods, right? Ancient Greece has all of its gods, and they all represent different parts of the universe. But one thing they all had in common was that gods were immortal. God can't die. So when Christianity comes along proclaiming that God came into earth in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, and he gave his life on the cross to forgive us from our sins... Even though we, we also believe he rose again on the third day, he overcame death, but he still died. And for the Greeks, they just said, that. then how could you call him your God? That God can't die. That sounds foolish to us. And it wasn't even a question that they were necessarily curious about. As they are diving deep into wisdom and philosophy, these ideas about divinity really weren't on their mind. They were more focused on, on our life, on this life. And really, the, the, the highest Greek question back in the day of philosophy that they were really curious about is, how do I have a good life? What would it look like for me to have a good life here and now? And this was kind of their biggest program. I want to know how I can have a good life. And that might be a question that you're asking. It might be a question that every human who's ever lived has asked. I want to have a good life. And how do I do that? Well, again, 400 years before Jesus, Plato wrote about how to have a good life. And people knew this. And so what he wrote in the Republic is that, that you have a soul. You have an inner life that's more than just the outside of you. But your soul, who you are on the inside, is actually made up of three parts, he said. And the first part of your inner life is your mind, your reasoning part. The Greek word is nous. And it's, it's your intellect, your reason, where, where you can do philosophy, where you can ask thoughtful questions and come to good decisions. And the most important thing for their system was that your mind had to be in charge. Your reasoning part was the, the highest part of you. Now, it's not the only part. He kind of works his way down and says that the next part of your inner life, your soul, is your, your spirit, or the Greek word thumos. It's, I love, say, everybody say thumos. I mean, it, it almost sounds like it's your chest, right? That's what it means, is your chest. Your passions, you know, the things that excite you, that get you up in the morning, that make you angry or, or want to change things, right? I think a lot this week, 4th of July, people are going to be experiencing a lot of, you know, patriotic thumos. And passions are good. We, we ought to have passions and be a passionate people, a spirited people. It's, it's good for things to excite you, to invigorate you. Because otherwise we wouldn't want to make things better or, or change the world around us. But what, again, Greek philosophy would say, if you don't let your mind tell your spirit what to do, 
and it's the other way around, if your spirit, your passions are in charge, well, then you're just going to end up living a chaotic, almost dangerous life, jumping into things when you shouldn't and, and confronting things when you shouldn't because your passions are running the show, and that's not a good life. So then working all the way down, the third part of yourself is, is your, your gut or your desires, your appetites, the, the Greek word epithumia, the, the, the things about you that you just like that are good. And again, it's a good part of you. That it's a good thing to have a desire for things that taste good, look good, feel good. It's a part of yourself. But again, what happens if, if you let, let your desires run the show? Like say this week on 4th of July, if it's your thing, you know, I want a cheeseburger, right? Really good cheeseburger for the 4th of July. It tastes good. It's a good desire. And then what happens if your gut says, now I want 10 cheeseburgers right now? Or if you enter into the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. That, that's probably not a good life. And, and if your mind isn't in charge saying, I don't think that's a very good idea. One might be good. Ten might kill you. Let's not do that. That's a bad life, right? So a good life in ancient Greek philosophy is when your head is governing your other passions and your desires. And to you, that might, that might sound really good. That, it's, it's wise, that there's some wisdom there, right? I don't think any of us would disagree that that kind of makes sense. It made sense for centuries. People still read it, apply it. Why then would the church have such a hard time influencing a culture that, that they, they are reasonable people? I should be able to convince a thoughtful, philosophical culture of the good news of Jesus Christ. Why would they say that it's foolishness, this message of Jesus? How would it have such a hard time relating or connecting to what they are thinking about? What, what makes Jesus so different from this? Doesn't Jesus want me to have a good life too? Couldn't this be a possible solution for the things that are going on in my life? And again, to keep investigating, we need to explore this letter. So in our Bible reading for today, we see some things that are going on in this Corinthian church that Paul is writing a letter to. Chapter 1, verse 10 he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you. So we've got some problems, right? We see right away that this church in Corinth already has some division going on. So maybe there's hope for all of us, right? As long as there's been a church, there's been divisions in the church, except for ours. We can all make the same noises together. So I'm glad Emily sorted that out for us. They had problems. We don't have problems now. They've got some divisions, but what are they? Maybe when we think about divisions that we've heard about or maybe even experienced sadly in the church, certain things might come to mind, things that we argue about in the 21st century. It looked a little bit different for them, and again, it, it matters why we should know what culture they were a part of. So in the next verse, it kind of tells us this is their division. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. What's going on here? So some of them are saying, I like what you have to say, Paul. The things that you have written in other letters or said about Jesus, that sounds like a good life to me. Or Apollos, who is another church planter like Paul, going around the Mediterranean and planting churches, they liked what he had to say. Cephas is the Greek name for Peter one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Cephas was running the church in Jerusalem, and he was also writing letters to churches. Some of them said, I like what he has to say better than Paul. And I think it's interesting that Christ makes this list, that Jesus makes this list among other New Testament authors. Because what they were doing is 
not uncommon to how they'd always done things in ancient Greek philosophy. They, they would find their philosophical guru, right? I, I believe that, that Plato's version of the good life is the best, and I'm going to follow that. Or I follow the Epicureans, or I follow the Stoics. Whatever philosophy floated your boat, that's what they latched onto, that's what they held, and that was what, how, how they applied philosophy to a good life. So when Christianity comes on the scene, that's all they saw it as. One more piece of good advice for how to have a good life and a bunch more philosophers that they could pick and choose from and say, well, I like that better than that. And they had reduced, they had reduced Jesus Christ, God's son, to his teachings and his wisdom, treating him like just one more philosopher. And we do the same thing in the church today. We still do that to Jesus today. We, we, we want the Bible to tell us some good advice. I want a good life. When I leave here, I want my life to be better than when I came in. And so give me some good advice, some wisdom. And Jesus has that. He's got good teachings that we latch on to, but we, we remove or we select out the parts of his story that are the most critical, central parts of the gospel, of the things that he did, especially in his death and his resurrection. That Jesus isn't just another philosopher. It doesn't just offer us another system for how to think about a good life. He's the one who transforms everything because he is God incarnate who has come into our world to save us, to set us free, to forgive us. And so that's why Paul then says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the most important thing. For the church in the first century, for the church today, the cross of Christ is central to who we are as followers of Jesus, not just his, his teachings and his philosophy or good advice that we might glean from the Bible. It's the gospel. And Paul even says, I'm just not going to argue this with you. I didn't come with wisdom and eloquence. I'm not going to try to convince you philosophically that Jesus is a better idea than these other philosophers who you've had for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because if you reduce Jesus from being God, God's son, to just another philosopher or a system for living life, then you have missed who Jesus really is. You've missed the gospel. That it's not just a system of teaching and idea, it's, it's a system that transforms all of your life and reshapes all of creation. And we only see that when we look to the power of the cross itself. And Paul keeps diving into this in this whole first chapter. He wants to make sure that they really hear him. In verse 20, he asks, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And in verse 21, this is the key. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Well, what Paul is basically saying here is that for hundreds of years, your best and your brightest, they never would have figured out that God's solution for the world to save the world was going to be to send his son into the world to give up his life. You couldn't have called that. And that's really what convinces Paul, what convinces the early church. No one would have figured that out. The best and the brightest weren't going to make that call. Yeah, God's going to save the world by sending his son to die. That sounds like foolishness to the Greeks. It doesn't make sense. But he says to those who are being saved, it is the power of God that we see something far deeper and greater in the message of the cross than we ever could through any philosophical system. Because what Jesus offers isn't just a, a good life here and now. If that's all you really want from Christianity, I mean, you can find some good advice in the Bible. I'm not saying it isn't there. And that we also shouldn't apply it from time to time. 
There's a lot of wisdom here for how to live your daily life. But if that's all you want from Christianity, from your relationship with Jesus, then you are missing the God life. Not just a good life today, but a God life for all of eternity. Forgiveness from your sins that will set you free forever so that your soul isn't just in right alignment for the days that you live here on earth, but for all of eternity in the presence of a God who loves you. That's what Jesus offers in a relationship with him. So that's why when he is asked, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And again, he's being asked in the context of people who knew very well the the wisdom of the day, the wisdom of the world. And when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He could have said a bunch of things. Don't kill anyone. Don't steal. Don't cheat on your your spouse. There, There are a lot of good commandments, a lot of good advice. Instead, this is what Jesus says. The greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And do you see how Jesus is actually directly pointing at the wisdom of the day? I mean, Greek philosophy had made its way in and through Jerusalem for centuries. Jesus knew about Plato's teachings. They all did. The Greeks had had influenced Jerusalem for for generations. They knew that the world's wisdom was a well-ordered life, from your head to your heart to your gut. And what Jesus says is that's just not good enough. That might be a good life for, for a few days here and there. It might give you more ups than downs as you walk around this earth. But how far is that really going to get you? When you make mistakes, when you can't order your life by your own power or wisdom or strength, the only solution, not just for a good life, but for a God life that lasts forever, is to surrender all of who you are heart, soul, mind, and strength, to the power and to the authority of Jesus Christ. That is how you have not just a good life now, but forever. Because no philosophical system could ever offer you the things that Jesus offers in a relationship with him, which is forgiveness. That takes away the stain of our sin, the guilt of our sin. That sets us free to live for all of eternity with him as his authority. And that's why, that's why when Jesus does teach amazing sermons... When Jesus does heal people of their diseases, he starts those off by saying, the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God was Jesus' first word on anything he ever taught, meaning that my authority has come into the world. And your best solution for how to have a great life that persists for all of eternity is to give your allegiance to Jesus, who is your king and your Lord, to give all of yourself to him, to love him with everything you've got. And again, it doesn't make sense to the people who are hearing it for the first time. It can be hard for us because this isn't how the world works or tells us it should work. That in order to be saved, I have to give up my life. Surrender is God's solution. That Jesus will lay down his life so that we can be saved. It makes about as much sense as how average Joes ended up winning the dodgeball tournament. Let's take a look. Please, we'll play with four people. It's not an advantage. Can't you bend the rules just this once? There's nothing I could do. Rules are rules. You don't have enough players. Inform the committee and Mr. Goodman about average Joes forfeit. Yes, sir. Better luck next year. Excuse me. Sorry, I'm late. You won't believe what just happened to me, though. Hey, guys, what's up? You just in time to help us forfeit. Forfeit why? Well, I, I, I don't know what to tell you, but 
Yes. No, I'm being told that Average Joe's does not have enough players and will be forfeiting the championship match. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. To the tournament floor we go for the Scepter presentation from the Dodgeball Chancellor. Ladies and gentlemen, by the power vested in me by our governing body, the American Dodgeball Association of America, and in concordance with our sponsors, Lumber Liquidators and Omaha Steaks, it gives me great pleasure to declare the winner of this year's Las Vegas International Tournament to be... Wait! He's here! Hey, guys. Sorry I'm late. So, no, forfeiting a game is not a good strategy for how to win. Giving up is not a good plan for how to gain victory. So when Jesus comes into the world proclaiming a gospel of the kingdom that isn't a kingdom that is won by power or strength or military victory, but a one that is of surrender, of laying down, of putting yourself last, the world has a hard time making sense of that. We have a hard time making sense of how that could possibly be the case. It's not how the world tells us things should work. And we only see that again when we look closely and carefully at the message of the cross. This is why Paul continues to say, and I want you to pay attention to this as we keep going each week of this month. We're looking at this, these letters to the Corinthians. He keeps doing this as a theme, presenting this upside-down way the wisdom of God contradicts and is higher than the wisdom of the world. In Corinthians, we get the famous passage in chapter 12 that, that in our weakness, we find God's strength. And he does this over and over again. It's a theme that he repeats, that God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world because it is upside down from the way the world thinks. And we only see that when we look at, again, the story of his crucifixion. And I know that, that typically we, we reserve sharing this story to the Easter season, to Lent, but this is so important to our faith. The, the, the cross of Jesus Christ, like Paul said, he even says in Corinthians, it is the most important thing that he knows. That he shares what is most important, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And if it's the most important thing, then we can't just leave it off as a story we tell once a year. We need to keep revisiting it and seeing how the wisdom of God is truly displayed in Jesus' crucifixion, which actually starts the night before. So the night before Jesus is crucified... He's eating a meal with his disciples. It's Passover, a Jewish high holy holiday, and it's the same meal that we commemorate when we take communion together, but there's a lot more elements to it, different phases and things like that to the Passover meal, and they've rented an upper room where they're going to have this meal together, and they all get there, everything is prepared and ready to go, except something is missing. There's no one there to wash anyone's feet. To us, that doesn't seem like a big idea, a big deal, but... In the ancient Middle East, if no one was there to wash your feet, not only were you unclean just to walk into somebody's house, you were not yet ritualistically ceremonially clean for a religious holiday to observe a festival meal. Because, again, this is the ancient world before roads were paved, before they had a system for how to deal with wastewater, and you're walking around all day long on these streets in your sandals or bare feet, and, and I think you're hoping that what you're walking in is mud. Best case scenario, right? Probably knowing in the back of your mind it's a lot worse than that all day long. And not just on your feet, but like it gets all the way up, maybe to your knees. 
So when you walk into somebody's house, there was always, always someone there to wash feet. And this was always the person at the lowest bottom of the social class, a servant, a slave. That was their only job was to wash everyone's disgusting feet. It was the worst job you could have in that society. So when Jesus and his disciples get to the upper room and there's no one there to wash their feet, it's a big problem. And I kind of almost imagine uh, the, the situation playing out. They all get there and, and all the disciples, these guys are just starting to look around wondering, who's going to do this? Uh, I'm, are you, are you going to do it? Well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not touching your feet. That's gross. And as they're sort of awkwardly staring and shifting and wondering, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and he pours out a big basin of water and he starts to wash all of their feet. And I don't want you to think like, oh, it's just some dust. And you... No, I mean, it's caked on mess from a day's worth of walking around. He might have had to use his fingernails to kind of break it apart and scrub. And it's 12 grown men. It was going to take a while. They were at this for a while while their Lord, their Savior, God incarnate, humiliating himself, doing the most degrading work anyone ever could, demonstrating the wisdom of God. He says this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, which is Jesus, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many, that's the final word on it. That that, that Jesus isn't coming into the world as a king to be uh, just heralded, upheld, pampered, served. He came in the world to serve and to die for people. That's who he is. The world does not get this kind of wisdom. That's terrible advice. I mean, if you were to ask somebody, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a promotion at work. I'm trying to make the football team. I'm trying to get better grades. What would the world tell you is the best advice? It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. If you don't get it, somebody else could. So you need to make sure you are number one and leave everyone in the dust, no matter what it takes. That, That in order to win, you've got to be out in front, at the head of the table, influence. The, the, the measure of your influence is the number of people who serve you, who report to you. That's how we know you've made it, that you're a success. And the wisdom of God displayed on the power of the cross of Jesus Christ said it's actually the opposite of that. That God's wisdom, that sounds foolish to the world, but to those of us who are being saved by it, recognize that true authority, true power, comes when we put ourselves at the back of the line when we make ourselves a servant of all people, when we decide to use whatever gifts and resources we have that God has blessed us with to bless the world around us, that's when we know we are actually successful in not a good life now, but a God life forever. So after this meal that they share together, Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane outside of town, and Jesus begins to spend the night in prayer. Because he knows that this is the night that one of his friends, Judas, is going to bring a mob of people to arrest him, to take him away to be executed. We, we vilify Judas because he's the one who betrays Jesus. They, they spent three years at least together. I mean, can you think of a friend in your life you've spent three years with? They were friends. Jesus knew that one of his friends was going to bring the people who were going to kill him. So he's in the garden and he's praying to his father. 
He's surrendering more of his will to God's and saying that it's not my will but yours. And and the Bible says he's sweating drops of blood because he knows what's about to happen to him. And at that moment, Judas does come with a mob of people to arrest him, to take him away. And so one of Jesus' disciples pulls a sword out and attacks the mob and he cuts off one of the ears of the men who came to arrest Jesus. Because that's the wisdom of the world. Right? The world says that if somebody attacks you, comes after you, then you have the right to come after them, to fight back, to meet violence with violence and power with power. That if you're going to come at me, I'm going to come at you stronger and we're going to have it out. That's the wisdom of the world. Makes sense to the world. What doesn't make sense is what Jesus tells his disciple, put your sword back in its place. The Greek word there is really important. He doesn't say put your sword away. He says, put it back where it belongs, which is in its sheath. Put it back where it belongs, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Doesn't make sense. That's foolishness to the world, that you wouldn't fight back. And not only that you wouldn't fight back, but Jesus actually heals the ear of the man who was wounded, puts him back together again, his enemy, somebody who later might have actually been a part of the crowd that was beating him or nailing him to a cross. He heals Because the wisdom of God displayed in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that as followers of Jesus, our ministry to the world is not to continue to help the world tear itself apart even more than it's already doing. The world doesn't need more help being more violent. What it needs is the wisdom of God that restores, that heals, that puts the world back together again. That when violence is done to us, we don't respond with violence in turn, We look for ways to heal and to reconcile and to restore. That's the wisdom of God displayed in the power of the cross. And that's the ministry of the church. That's our responsibility as followers of Jesus. If we truly follow him, it's not just about living good advice. It's about doing things like this that confuses the world but shows them how much God loves them. So after Jesus is taken away and arrested, he's put on trial, and it's not really a trial that we would think of that's orderly in a, in a courtroom. They, they could have done that. That existed back then. Instead, what happened is it's the middle of the night, and uh, the, the religious and political leaders who had Jesus arrested, they don't want the city to find out because there are still plenty of people in Jerusalem who are following Jesus. So they arrest him in the middle of the night, and they put on this sham trial where they're, they're, they're moving him between different palaces and guards and religious leaders' homes, and they're, they're accused accusing him of all sorts of things, falsely accusing him because they're trying to pin on him anything they can use as an excuse to put him to death as a political prisoner, as, a, as an insurrectionist. They're trying to, to pin all these things on him that he never really did. And all the while they're beating him, punching him, spitting on him, slandering him. And the wisdom of the world says, if someone says something about me that's false, that I don't like, well, then I have every right to, to respond to that to fight back, to argue, to debate. If someone accuses me falsely, then I need to defend myself, stand up for myself, the world's wisdom says. If someone posts something on social media that I don't particularly like, then I need my voice to be heard, even louder and more aggressive, so we can argue and debate back and forth. And how's that going for us? How has that gone? It's never really gone very well for me, I can tell you that. Here's what Jesus does instead. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? All the lies that are being told about him. But Jesus remained silent. 
That's foolishness, Jesus. Stand up for yourself. Fight back. Comment. Your voice deserves to be heard. All of our, we all get an opinion. But Jesus knows something different. He knows that, that his Father in heaven is on his side. He trusts that with God in his corner, his Father, he doesn't really need to defend himself at all. That, that his best and brightest comment, his wisest saying, isn't going to change their minds anyway. So in his silence, he actually communicates a depth of wisdom and grace and compassion that he expects all of us to have in our communication with other people. That he even says, when people hurl insults at you and slander of various kinds, that, that it's up to us to, to forgive them, to respond not with criticism or, or judgment, but with love. And he keeps on going because after he's finally convicted and led up the, the, the hill to where he's going to be crucified, carrying his own cross, the Romans nail him to this cross. And he is crucified, nailed through his hands and his feet. He experiences the most excruciating pain. We actually get the word excruciating from the same Greek root as crucifixion. Jesus literally experiences excruciating pain. It is put on the cross for three hours in the sun to bleed and suffocate to death. Because that is what is the price for our forgiveness. To take away our sins, to take away the guilt, the death that we owe, Jesus pays. And, and he's still being insulted. People are still yelling up at him, if you're really God, prove it. God can't die. If you're really him, come off of their cross. Save yourself, Jesus, if you can. And he could have. No one would have been forgiven or saved. No one could experience the God life. They would continue going on experiencing maybe a good life for a day or a week or a year. But Jesus decides to stay on the cross. And as he is being killed, he looks out at the people who have killed him and, they say, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing that in his most painful hour, Jesus looks at the people who have done this to him and he forgives them too. So what is it that you want from Jesus today? If you want good advice, if you want wisdom, if you want philosophy, it's there. But you're going to be missing the gospel, the best and most eternal part of who Jesus really is. The, the thing that you could never do for yourself, that no wise system could ever accomplish for you. The forgiveness that all of us need so we can live a life of eternity in, in the presence of his love forever, that is what we can walk away from with today. That you could give your life, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to Jesus as your king to receive this free gift of grace that will save you forever.